You're listening to an Empavillion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Before introductions, I think we all need to be mesmerised for a moment by this gorgeous, gorgeous, um, the filling of the ink. And I'm going to pull out that. my camera here and mm. photograph this utterly beautiful action. For those uh, listening on the audio, the great Simon is filling. We have a Simon McEwen kind of um, performance here of... Um, ink syringe and fountain pen and it's absolutely beautiful oh my goodness so what a perfect day to be at m pavilion could it be any lovelier we've got sunshine we have a breeze um here on the lands of the bunwarang the bunurong and the woiwurrung wurundjeri people of the kula nation here on yalikat willem country uh, this place uh, this utterly beautiful place uh, where sovereignty was never ceded um, in coming together to exchange ideas, to talk about our practice and our customs. Um, we honour uh, the stories and practice and customs um, of people who have uh, lived, uh, lived here, who have exchanged story and ceremony and celebration and mourning and joy. For more time than we can possibly imagine, uh, and we honour their elders past and present. My name's Esther Anatolitis. Today's event is called Vertical Horizons, Reinvigorate Your Practice. And we are starting with a group of extraordinary artists, thinkers, makers in a range of different fields, and we'll ask for introductions in a little minute. Um, but first of all, um, some practicalities. Um, there are wonderful drinks to be had over there for entirely reasonable prices. Um, over the hill over there, there is a toilet. Um, but over there, there are also toilets, really quite lovelier ones. Um, and um, we also are obviously in the lovely outdoors here under this gorgeous structure. And as everyone has pointed out, there are going to be times when you'll hear on the audio that we will be wriggling and rearranging our stools so that we can either catch the light or be in the shadows, <laughs> be in the shade, because it is a gloriously sunny and breezy day. So today's conversation um, and writing, and everyone's brought their favourite writing things, um, is about reconnecting with our own practice as creative people. Um, obviously, we've had um, to roll out all the words. We've had a disruptive, unprecedented, etc., etc. time <laughs> the last few years. Um, and all the ways in which... Oh, thanks, Sam. Beautiful. Um, all the ways in which we would tend to come together with other people and meet people, all the ways in which we would tend to have accidental encounters with people's work, 
those things haven't existed. And I think that's been one of the things that's really been um, kind of underappreciated in, in this little while, like the, the, the role and the place of accidental encounter. When we go and, um, and see someone's work or see a performance, when we run into someone in a foyer, when we have that conversation about, um, you know, how's, how are things going with that project, um, when we get together in ways that aren't entirely programmed, we ignite our thinking in different ways. And that has really been missing. We've had to program so much of what we do. It's been online. It's been, you know, particular times. I'm going to make a, you know, we go for a walk date with someone. I'm going to, you know. Um, and for those of us, you know, um, maintaining different kinds of practice, that has been, there's a wind picking up now, so you're hearing that on the, on the audio. Um, it's something that you don't consider. It's something that you don't sort of think, well, how am I going to rediscover that aspect of, you know, that completely unreflected upon aspect of my practice, which is about accidentally running into um, uh, Chad or Helen or Julianne or Simon or Sam or Ollie, um, and then having that conversation that because I wasn't expecting it and I didn't plan it, it inspired me to reconfigure my thinking in ways that I otherwise would not have. And those accidental encounters, they also give us confidence. They give us courage. When we go out and something happens that we didn't expect and we respond to it and we cope with it in different ways. I mean, this goes to what we were saying earlier as well. I think about the Saturday tantrums that have been happening here in the city of Melbourne, certain kinds of, you know, they call them protests, but it is people who have been cooped up at home for a long time and not having that confidence that comes from accidental encounter and, and engagement and not having that experience of meeting people who are different to them and having to have a bit of a conversation and not retreating into a space of fear. So today, um, which will likely be a compressed form of our several hours, uh, the original idea, let's see how we go, the original idea was to have an hour of thinking about what is your practice? Like, what actually is it? Not just what do you do creatively, but what is your practice? What do you practice? What do you do in your practice? How do you talk about your practice? Um, what constitutes your practice? Um, and then, you know, a bit of a break. Um, and um, then reflecting on this tremendous, this magnificent structure, which is a reflective thing, and the inspiration behind the title for today, Vertical Horizons, um, the idea was then to look at um, what inspires and what disrupts our practice. So constructive disruption, but then also, you know, negative kinds of disruption. And then a bit of a break, and then looking at, you know, next year, what we like to do what are some plans, um, what are some personal commitments, and so on. Um, but first of all, let's hear from each other um, some introductions. Um, we've had our lovely informal introductions earlier, and now we're sitting on stools with microphones, and so it's necessarily going to sound more formal as we introduce ourselves. But uh, let's give it a go, starting with Chad. Okay, so I'm Chad Toprak. Um, I... I'm an experimental game designer. I use the term experimental because my practice 
often revolves around making games, but not the types of games that might come to people's minds. You know, um, when people often think of games, they're, they're thinking of commercial games that you buy off a shelf or you play online. Um, the types of games that I'm interested in are quite different to that. Um, they kind of intersect with the arts um, and playful culture. Um, a lot of my work uh, revolves around installation work, um, often in the public or in weird, unconventional spaces where you don't really see games being installed into, like public transport, for example. Um, uh, so there's that aspect of my practice. Um, but the other hat that I wear is I'm, I'm an independent curator, and I've been doing that since... 2013, um, and my outlet for that is a curatorial collective based here in Melbourne called Hover Garden, um, um, where we will host um, exhibitions, gatherings, events, parties um, that often celebrate uh, independent and experimental games that kind of mix and merge with other forms of media and, and art. Um, and, yeah, I've been balancing the two of them um, for quite some time, uh, often focusing on one more than the other and then switching it around in, during certain points. Um, I'm also the, uh, the current director of Freeplay, which is a, a, technically the, the world's longest-running independent games festival. Um, oh, my goodness, it is too. Yeah, yeah, wow. so... Um, established here in Melbourne in 20, 2004 as part of Next Wave. Um, um, first established by Catherine Neal and Marcus Westbury and since then have has seen several directors come and go. Um, my time with Free Plays almost coming to an end. I've actually announced that um, the last event we hosted in... Uh, October would be my last as as director, so I'll be stepping down from that shortly. Um, but I've I've found during my time as as director of free play, um, I've focused a lot on um, uplifting and spotlighting and providing space and and platform for emerging and experimental um, game game makers, um, both here but also. Um, in, in neighbouring countries like New Zealand, but also um, several countries in Southeast Asia. Um, and that's kind of made up a, a big chunk of what I do. Um, and now that I'm stepping down from being director of free play, um, I'm now having to kind of readjust and reconfigure and rethink about what my practice actually is and what it looks like. So, yeah. Well, this is timely. Thanks, Chad. Helen. Um, Hello. Yeah. <laughs> um, so my name's Helen Cork, and I'm a, I call myself a multimedia artist and designer. Um, and my work kind of ranges from like playful installations, experimental games, and like public play activations, I guess. Um, I'm very much still emerging. Um, I kind of delved into this area since the beginning of um, this year. So in some ways, I'm still kind of figuring out my practice as I go. Um, but I 
I'm actually originally from Perth and I worked as a digital designer for eight years before deciding to quit my government job and move to <laughs> Melbourne. Good work. <laughs> and um, I just graduated from a master's in animation games and interactivity from RMIT last year. Um, but since then, um, since graduating, um, I've worked a lot with Chad on a range of kind of public art playable installation work like Street Tape Games, which is um, installation that encourages people to play street and playground games, but with um, social distancing incorporated into the rules. Um, and yeah, a whole range of um, kind of like public art type installation work. Um, yeah, I think my interest is very much on blending the digital and physical together um, to create playful experiences that kind of extend beyond the screen. I think working as a digital designer for eight years and very much producing screen-based work, I was very sick and tired of that, staring at a screen. Um, and I really wanted to create these experiences that kind of extended beyond the screen and allowed people to be kind of physically present with one another. Um, yeah, so that that's kind of my main focus at the moment. I really like that, Helen. Like it's, you know, we, we have these devices now, all of us, well, almost all of us, apart from the gentleman we met earlier. Um, and we've, you know, we've got them with us at all times. And so, yeah, how do we add that kind of playful layer rather than being glued to the screen? I like that a lot. Thank you. So, hi, I'm uh, Julien Lair. The accent comes from France. Uh, <laughs> I've been here since 2008. And... Uh, Okay, I'll try, to, I'll try to explain my practice <laughs> in a way that makes sense. And Esther, who knows me, is laughing, saying, <laughs> with, is he going to With great joy. <laughs> um, so, okay. So there's one thing at the core of what I do, which is, let's call it editorial. Uh, so my main, say, professional identity is as an editor. What I do very well and what I love doing is listen to people who have a very complex idea of something very new, original, typically world-changing, and it goes blah, blah, blah. And then I listen to that and I turn it into text words that other people can understand. So uh, that, that's a lot of what I'm doing at the moment, working with people in all sorts of fields from mental health to governance innovation to uh, uh, carbon finance to uh, others. So there's that, that, that's one aspect of it. Um, another aspect of it is uh, writing. I'm also a writer. I've written novels, short stories. I'm co-authoring a book on governance innovation. And here I think it's more around what, I, what I'm trying to do is to create writing that prompts kind of a a sense of dissatisfaction with reality, kind of a, a, a distance and reflectiveness. So that old, like European novel style polyphony and writing that is not the memoir that expresses the self, but rather that invites the uh, understanding of a, a reality that is complex. Uh, then there is another aspect of the practice, which is, I'd call it chief editor. I've been, I, I've had multiple roles where I was essentially a chief editor. And so here it's more around, okay, here, here's a topic that we want to reflect on. What are the voices and the types of text that need to come together so that we can have a complex uh, polyphonic understanding of that topic, which is essentially the same type of practice as a curator, but for the written form. 
and so I think that sums a lot of it. No, there is another aspect as well, which is um, I also um, say design reflective experiences. And so I've uh, developed formats for uh, collaborative translation that prompt intercultural understanding. Uh, so thinking about differences in cultures and language and how that informs implicit ways of relating with other people. And how can we create modes of interaction that can work for people irrespective of the cultural or linguistic uh, settings, that, that default settings that they have. Uh, so that there can be a, a meeting of the minds and of people's sophistication, irrespective of uh, yeah that, that that cultural difference, I think that probably starts to get there. It's just so yes, extraordinarily multiple, and I don't think I've heard you describe it editorially before. And so I'm 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 fascinated by this thread, and I've got lots and lots of questions for you for well for all of you, but 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 for that in in a little yeah. minute. But Simon, tell us about you. Um, yeah, so my name's Simon McEwen. Um, what do I do? I usually describe myself as an artist, but I'm also an artisan in the sense that I work as a metal fabricator. I design furniture. I have been a jewellery designer, but I do that very, very occasionally now. I do illustration and animation, I guess. I'm trying to think what... I'm motivated by one, a kind of very close observation of how materials behave. And then also in my creative practice, this is a bit like an idea of making a model space. So somewhere between like a thought experiment and a diagram. And so just creating a little bit of environment in which things happen. But that's kind of very abstract. So in <coughs> um, a lot of my practice is about also portability. So I've been doing a lot of A5 paintings because they fit in my bag, I can do them anywhere. But then I also make quite large metal machines that are I guess metaphors for time and space. So I made a machine that makes eclipses that is a clock based on Mercurian time. Oh, amazing. So it's like, um, I think one minute on Mercury is about one Earth hour. So I just made a device that produced the effect of an eclipse every hour. Oh, I don't think I've seen that. Um, another thing was a kind of clock for the end of the Earth. So it's an artwork that would nominally run for the five billion years until the Earth is burnt up by the sun. <laughs> but it's also like clearly an absurd notion because the machine could never last that long and there would nobody, be nobody there to run it. <laughs> but a kind of... And the machine was just a bunch of large metal discs that would make a tone and then that tone would be sustained beyond the threshold of hearing and then it would persist in your mind as a kind of like a liminal ghost where you are still experiencing this thing that you can't hear anymore but you still sort of feel it so that was a way of producing a bodily effect that helps you think about time 
as a metaphor for a much longer time. Oh, amazing. And then I also just take lots of photographs of things, which I realize is a kind of creative practice, so a kind of constant observation. So I'd say walking around and observing. I think that. Ah, thank you. I'm already seeing just exactly how much we have in common. That is extraordinary. Um, so I'm Esther. Um, I think fundamentally I'm a writer. Like I really think by writing, but also drawing. And writing is just really important, I guess, to um, yeah the way that I um, um, kind of assemble and disassemble my thinking um, and English is not my first language and so there's that kind of um, um, there'll be moments of writing and just looking at a page and just suddenly being distracted by all the characters that are there and that, that abstract sense of that they're just lines um, which is one of my favourite parts of writing when you can have that wonderfully dissociative feeling um, I also very much enjoy bringing people into conversations to <laughs> critique the ways that we think um, because I find that incredibly um, um, intellectually and creatively stimulating. Um, but um, I also enjoy bringing people together in, in a range of different kinds of public spaces to consider um, the political contribution of our work and the, um, the ways in which our, um, our thinking, our values, our communities um, uh, create um, the politics of our times and the ways in which um, uh, that can be hijacked, displaced, etc., which is obviously a big conversation in, in the arts and culture uh, at the moment and probably in every other sector um, of society as we look at um, the political response to the pandemic um, and um, uh, just how far we have to go as a, as a society uh, to be able to, you know, uh, live together in, in far more meaningful ways. Um, I work as a creative industries strategist, so I, I work um, um, advising new creative precincts, I work with governments and arts organisations on their strategies, I work with boards and consortia of arts organisations, look at advocacy and public value and, and how they're going to orient what they do to the public to be able to reach the public in different ways. There's too much of a conversation of arts people just talking to each other and then wondering why uh, it never makes it onto the, onto the policy agenda. Um, so my work, yeah, kind of spans this sort of, um, these fields of place and practice and politics in, in a range of, of different ways. Uh, but everything you have just said um, has uh, got my mind ticking away about, I guess, the... Um, the specific ways in which um, each one of you facilitates um, cre creative and other experiences for others in, in, in the ways that you've just um, described, whether it's very, very long time and how we, you know, conceive of our place in the world, whether it's, um, you know, these um, um, ideas and issues for broader public good and the structures and governance models that, that enable that uh, or the modes of uh, translation and cultural translation that can connect us in critical new ways or whether it's the, um, the broader uh, playfulness of, of digital or non-digital kinds of um, technologies. Um, before we get into, I guess, um, um, some of the 
um, many questions I have some, about some of the specifics of, of, of your practices. Can you tell me what constitutes your practice? So, like, specifically, if you were describing it to someone who has just, you know, landed from the moon and you're saying the specific, the physical thing that you're doing, and to get us thinking about this, um, when we started speaking, um, and now we're rearranging ourselves to catch the shadows again, I'm going to also move a little bit too, I think, um, when we started speaking, and for those listening on the audio, we were um, having sort of informal chats and then, of course, started with um, turning the microphones on and, um, and, and, and speaking together. And as uh, I started to give that broader introduction about what we're doing, the first thing I noticed was that Simon began to draw. And drawing um, is also really important um, for me um, as an element of, of, of my practice, but Tell us, Simon, what drawing means to you. Like, what, what is it for you? Uh, why do you draw? Um, I think... So, the thing that fascinates me about writing is the way in which a kind of... What to me feels like a kind of simultaneous field of stuff stretched out into a little thread and given a kind of logic and a hierarchy and a sort of, you know, like a temporal space where each word follows the next and while I can write things I just find it very confusing whereas drawing, I suppose is a way of entering into that spatial um, you know, instantaneous simultaneous dimension so a kind of way of representing a sort of thought space where things happen. And in a way, like model trains, it's also like a sort of weird act of possession <laughs> where you just like make a mini thing of something that's yours on a piece of paper. Drawing as an act of possession. I really love this. Does this resonate with you guys? Do you sometimes draw something and there's an immediate sense of that is mine? But I guess the other thing, you know, it's a thing that just takes time. And so if you're drawing something you're looking at, you're entering into a long kind of thought process with that thing. So it's an act of sitting with things and thinking about them. What's Different happening? kind of observation. Yeah. What's happening in your mind, like, as, as you're drawing? It's an, it's an act of sitting with something, but then you also described it as almost representing uh, a thought space. Um, but then there's, um, there's real kind of structure and discipline to your drawing as well. Are you wanting to discipline your thinking or you, are you creating a smoothness? Um, I have ADD so if you've ever seen they always do like a live cross to someone standing on the beach in a hurricane and the <laughs> palm trees are sort of horizontal and they're yelling I'm here on the beach and blah 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 and this is going on and often that's how it feels in my mind so there's a lot of thoughts and a lot of very noisy thoughts and so Often drawing is a way to let those thoughts happen while giving a kind of 
occupying guidance. So a thing that I can do. Um, so I'll often draw when I'm listening to people talk because it helps me just listen to them without having too many other thoughts happen because there's a kind of thing that occupies that energy. I often find that if, if I'm writing while I'm listening to something, I, I learn and remember better. Um, and I've often wondered whether that's just because, again, English not being my first language, whether it's something to do with the mechanical act of writing. But what about you three? Um, writing, drawing, is that is that part of your practice? If you were, um, you know, to think about specifically what you do. Um, well, I guess for me, um, between 2013 and 2017, I was actually doing a PhD, which involves a lot of writing. Um, and I, I unfortunately never ended up completing it um, due to a lot of um, um, challenges and, and, and issues with supervision and several other things. But um, I was never satisfied with, with what I was writing and had a lot of trouble, and I, I, I probably still do, um, have a lot of trouble getting words onto the paper. And when I do get the words on the paper, I'm not happy with them because maybe they just don't quite represent what, what's in my head. And I, po I possibly have the same issue with drawing. And, and it's probably this, this um, trouble of having an, an idea or concept in your mind and it just not fully translating onto the paper, whether, whether that's drawing or writing. Um, and yeah, I've never, I've never had really had a, a, a way of getting past that. Maybe it's just um, shifting mindset and, and, and trying to accept that it's okay, that it's not perfect or it's not mm. great. So. Let's stay with that thought for a second. What happens when you have something in your mind and you don't have the, what is it, the tools, the medium, the something in front of you to translate it out there? What does that what does that feel like? Frustration. <laughs> Julian? Well, I have a, a different experience. Uh, like I, I do a lot of editing. I've never struggled to produce text ever in my life. You just put me in front of a thing and I will just generate 7,000 words in an hour. Uh, it won't be very good, uh, <laughs> mind you. Like It will be e extremely mediocre, but it will not be difficult. Um, and so I, I've, I've always been in this kind of, I don't know, I was describing it to a, a friend today uh, as this pasty relationship to thought. Where it's kind of like a muddy river and there's just things happening and I just kind of capture them, but it's, it's pasty and messy and there's just st stuffage. Uh, and then I see the, 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 the creative act actually as the next stage of then shaping that up. And collecting and then and then bringing things back. So it's various metaphors that I've used. It's like making tomato um, sauce, where you need to just evaporate the water, uh, and so you just kind of and then you add more flavoring and then you evaporate it more. Um, yeah. But concretely, in terms of what my practice is, I sit in front of a computer with a text, and I uh, on the word document, and I use track changes, and then I iterate and iterate and iterate and iterate and iterate until I move things up and down and et cetera, and I change words until I have a sense of the, the chemistry and the flow of the text working, I think, is what the, what the practice is. 
numbers, just extreme, extremely high numbers of repetitions. It's funny, isn't it, for any kind of work or practice that, that that's desk-based, um, you know, to an alien visitor, a lot of us would look like we're doing exactly the same thing, you know. We have maybe... Uh, some flat surface in front of us and some kind of stick in our hands that we're making lines come out of or we're in some probably not the best posture sitting in front of a screen with a, you know, a board with lots of keys on it um, and we're sort of pressing those keys at different times. <laughs> How long does yours look like? Yeah, I mean, I actually feel the same with Chad that I'm... I personally feel like I'm not a very natural writer. Like, it's very hard for me to get the right words on a page. Um, and now that i have um, working independently as an artist, I find that I have to write a lot of grant applications, uh, <laughs> yeah. um, describing the work that I do or the work that I'm going to do. And one way I found that I was able to kind of tackle that kind of writer's block is um, just write a lot of dot points. It's just kind of like that mindless dump of information onto a page and not worry about how it's written um, and just get, every, get everything down first before I go back and do the editing side of things and um, make it sound better. <laughs> um, but that's kind of my way of tackling that, um, that initial writer's block because I just don't find myself a natural writer. <laughs> I think that's a, that's a very good idea. And even, um, you know, I often talk about uh, different, you know, strategies and techniques for constructive disruption, which is about using your hands differently, that, um, um, you know, the bullet points gets you thinking differently because you're not even trying to make sentences. You're just getting the things out there and onto the, the screen. Um, but then maybe also trying things like um, writing, you know, handwriting that list or making a mind map of get a nice big sheet of paper and just put put words on it and then maybe just draw connections between them and see what surprises you. Because when we, um, you know, as as Simon is showing us again, when, when we use our hands differently, our minds do different things. Um, but we're so used to, you know, far too often just using our hands and our posture when we're working in exactly the same way. You know, think about all those meditative practices that are about, you know, let's find so many different physical alignments of the body um, and even of the hands and the fingers to, to stimulate um, focus and attention. There's probably all sorts of ways that you do that like right now all the time. It, it, are there ways that spring to mind? Do you, do you get up and start cooking or cleaning? Like what, what, what are your things that you do now that sometimes feel like it's procrastination, but actually it's, um, it's kind of reconfiguring your thinking a bit? Take a shower. <laughs> Take a shower. Take a shower is a good example because you're stimulating your brain in ways that nothing, like n nothing else can do that. Um, unless you have one of those, do you know that, that metal thing um, which looks like a spider and is actually called an orgasmatron? Have you seen those? Um, the head. Yes, the head, head massager. The head massager, that's right. Yeah, so can you picture what this is? This, yeah, so it's, uh, it has maybe eight prongs, maybe they're copper with um, little plastic tips and you put on your head and you r remove it slowly, you know, or as slowly as otherwise as you like, um, and it stimulates um, your head in 
all sorts of extraordinary ways that you generally can't. Like sometimes you, you probably find yourself scratching or massaging your head if you're tired or frustrated or something uh, because we just do that instinctively. Um, but yeah, a shower stimulates all of your head in, in ways that nothing else can. Um, it's, I, I find it really fascinating that um, it's those moments where you're actually not doing the work but doing something completely mindless where your head is not thinking about the work. Um, but those activities, whether it's having a shower or washing the dishes or vacuuming, um, where your mind is quite free to, to wander around and think yeah. and... and um, or to not think um, that allows that that gives you that space to to process those thoughts and and come to conclusions. Well, there's like our you know our our number one our first commitment for next year is to think about how we're going to make time to let our minds wander freely, and you know do those accidental encounter type things, and um, you know all of you in your practice, but you know there's a great kind of tradition of this in a range of different um, practices around um, games and exploration around you know the situationists and the derive around. Um, I mean, when Chad was just saying about yeah you sort of you, you're doing those things, and then they're kind of mindless, and and but your brain's still going. It makes me think of um, the cocktail party phenomenon. Have you heard of this? The cocktail party phenomenon. It's a, um, it's either a gestalt psychology or a behavioural psychology observation, which is that, um, which has been proven under many experimental circumstances. So, if you're if we were sitting here and there were some groups over there and over there and they were having conversations and you're sort of aware of the sounds of their voices but you can't really hear what they're saying because, like, we're having the conversation. But as soon as someone at the next group says your name or something a bit salacious, you're listening over there, which means that, of course, your brain was already listening over there or you wouldn't have heard your name. Um, and it's called the cocktail party phenomenon because, you know, you'll be at a busy cocktail party. But the experiments that have proven this uh, or, or that support this are... Um, um, there are ones where subjects will be given a headset and there's a different audio coming out of each ear. And they're told, you know, just forget the left one, just, just listen to the right one. I'm, I'm going to ask you some questions later. So listening to the right, you know, ready to answer the questions. And of course, the experimenters ask them questions about both ears and they are able to answer uh, from what they heard on, on, on both sides. Our brains are always doing more than one thing at a time. It's quite incredible. Um, which is why it can be so tiring to do things like, you know, be in the city on a busy day before Christmas on public transport, you're navigating, you know, you're sort of constantly negotiating people around you and, and the tantrum and, you know, does that person look, you know, kind of okay and safe or, or hostile? Um, or um, remembering back Simon's description of, bless you, all the different um, materials that you work with, that there'd be times when you're working on something in particular um, and that's you know, like really specific in terms of um, what needs to be done today or that, 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 that there are these particular um, materials to hand. Um, but at the same time, there's that ticking away about um, things that are wholly unrelated, except that, you know, the brain is doing that 
that thinking. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess I have this advantage in my work where I'm doing lots of process work. So, I mean, lately I've been making hundreds of chairs. And so I just have a lot of time to think while I do things. And, um, you know, the, the actions that I'm doing are fairly autonomous and they're very embodied. So I'm just doing a, a number of processes that my body knows how to do. So then my mind is kind of free to wander. And so it's, on the one hand, it's frustrating because I'd like to just be free to do stuff all the time, not have to earn money. And then on the other hand, I, I do recognize that it's also an extremely productive way of not being able to consume things and just being forced in a space of mm. thought and reflection. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, the, the world is full of tasty intellectual treats that are constantly <laughs> served up to us it's so that true. we never need to be bored. <laughs> but we need that boredom. Ah, now here's another good word, boredom. Um, but touching on process first, because there's some of the things that um, you both suggested earlier, you know, um, a shower is kind of abstract, but we don't we sort of tend to do exactly the same thing in the same sequence when we're in the shower. We probably do over time. Um, washing the dishes, we're creating order. Um, we've probably got all sorts of techniques for doing that. Uh, making hundreds of chairs, uh, there would be a set of ways that, that you would do that. So we're kind of, we're reaching for these ways of um, just, you know, um, running, running the machine through the cycle, you know, running, running the body through the cycle so that we can make those alignments and, and connections and, you know, Re refire the pistons. So, what does what does boredom look like in your practice? Kind of the opposite of that. What does boredom look like? We're all mystified now. It's a kind of lassitude where you just can't bring yourself to do things. I find. Mm. But is that kind of like? Um, is that, is that boredom or is that just a kind of like a tiredness, a reluctance? I don't know. Boredom to me, there's just, there's something abject about boredom. Boredom is like, it's not just the, how do you say, the, the absence of, of stimulus, but it's just like nothing will do, you know. Mm. I mean, I guess, you know, there's, you could talk about different forms of boredom, different mm. boredoms. Yes, yes. Tell us about these forms of boredoms. <laughs> well, there's one that I find in the studio where I go in and then I'm like, ah, oh, I just can't do anything. And so mainly I combat that by setting up preconditions in work. So I'm like, well, I just don't, I don't feel like doing anything, but I've got this thing that I can do because I've already thought about it and I'll just, I'll just see what it does. And that, that can help. Sometimes I just don't do anything. <laughs> I just read a book <laughs> or lie down on the floor and look at the ceiling. Mm, nice. Um, oh, did you want to... Well, I think to me, boredom has, has some sort of connection to expectation. Mm. Um, you know, when, when you pick up a video game, you, you know, unless it's something very experimental and, and designed to be boring, um, you expect it to, to be fun, you know, and satisfying. Um, but when 
that expectation is not met and you're not enjoying the experience or getting anything out of it, um, I think that can, yeah, lead to, lead to boredom. Um, what do you think? I think boredom for me is when I'm having to work on something that I find, like, there's no purpose to it. <laughs> like, like, why am I doing this? And I have to do it. <laughs> like, I don't know. I feel like that's like, like a task that I'm like, oh, I actually don't have to do this. But for some reason, some odd reason, I just have to do it. Like an assignment or taxes. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, something like that. Love and I'm like, my whole body's just resisting it, I yeah. think. And then, yeah, I get really bored. I procrastinate and try and find other things to do. I think this is important, this connection between intention and valuing and, and, and boredom. So I'm reminded of, um, um, I, I've run a number of arts organisations, as you know, and um, there's um, some really interesting professional development conversations that I have with colleagues where sometimes I start to know before they do that it's probably time to move on. Like they've achieved so much here and yes, it's great working together, but I just know that there's only so much more I'm going to be able to offer um, that, you know, it could be time to think about the next thing and it can be really awkward and difficult to, to say to someone who you really enjoy working with um mate you know <laughs> it could be time to move on especially when there's like the, the the you know the performance from a formal point of view is 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 great but I can see in them that it's time to go to that next level so an expression that I've started to use over the many years is busy but bored so that feeling you have where like you've got lots on and your workload, your, how do you say, your work plan, it's, um, you know, it's pretty full. Like it's, there's, there's lots of good stuff, you know, to do and you're doing the good stuff, but you're bored. Like exactly as Helen was just saying, you're just, you're going through the motions, like, you know, you're clearly good at this, um, but what are you getting out of it? And so, yeah, busy but bored is the mindset that I always encourage colleagues to, um, yeah, be how do you say, to like develop an awareness of because what happens after busy but bored is frustration, then resentment. Like, why am I doing this? It's just too easy. It, I don't like it anymore. I'm, I'm not realising the, um, uh, the, the, the values or uh, developing the skills that I came here to develop um, or I'm finding in my practice, like I've been creating this work for ages. It's, it's, it's selling really well. Yeah, great. <laughs> I'm, I'm busy but bored. It's just not me anymore. There was a thing when you spoke about like something abject about boredom. Yes. <laughs> that, there's a feeling that I regularly encounter and that I'd never thought of under the guise of boredom. And now it's kind of opened this new perspective. Oh, good. So when editing a text, whether someone else is on my own, it often happens that I'll, I'll, I'll receive the text and I'll look at it and I will have a sense of disgust because <laughs> it's come back and it's just, it's just not holding together. Uh, it doesn't make clear sense. I'm just thinking this is bad, this goes nowhere. And there's times when the text is good enough that I can see very clearly right away what needs to be done. And that's exciting. That's just, yay, fun game, I can do it. But there's times when it's just like a blob and it seems like it's going to be a lot of effort, but also that it might lead nowhere. And so it's, it's a form of boredom that's less about emptiness. It's, I'd never thought of boredom this way, but that it's less about emptiness 
and more about a certain sense of overwhelm that comes with, I, I don't know where to start because this is just a kind of a gluey piece of sticky rice with too much water on it. <laughs> uh, and how do I turn this into, how do I even go from this to finding a process that will allow me to then play with it? Uh, and that's the moment when I experience boredom and want to just run away. Oh. Uh, you have just made me think of, yeah, a couple of things. Um, and I'm glad you picked up on the abject because it only came to mind because of what Simon had just said. And, and I was thinking about, yeah, there is something that um, that's like, you know, an aesthetic, a moral, you know, about boredom. It, there's real abject to it. But this makes me think of a couple of things. So first of all, yeah, that disgust that you just sometimes have, even looking at your own work and thinking, oh, God, you know. Um, but particularly in writing, I find one of the worst things in the world is when I'm nearly at the end of a piece, but I've suddenly realised exactly what's wrong with it. And it's everything. And, um, <laughs> and it's just like, I thought it was nearly done. And then, um, but now I can see that... Um, I was like moving quickly. It was kind of like your sticky rice metaphor, but if I think about kneading dough and I was moving quickly and it was supple and it was moving and oh, actually, no, let's, let's make it concrete. I was mixing concrete and it was moving and it was lovely and it was going to make it into a form. But then suddenly um, I've crossed that little threshold and it's starting to set. And now if I need to move it, I'm going to have to break it. It's not supple anymore. And, and that's when I just start having a feeling of, oh, God, it was all moving so nicely. And now it's just... And, and that feeling of just, you know, my whole body feels kind of, oh... That great heaving of, I can see you've all had this experience. <laughs> What's it like when, when you had that experience? Is it about concrete or rice or other things? <laughs> I think that concrete example works really well, um, you know, when you've realised that, um, that there's, there's parts that are missing from the foundation, but, yeah. but it's, starting to, it's starting to set. Yeah. Um, but I don't know, is that necessarily a bad thing? Like mm. maybe, you know, the fact that you've come to this conclusion perhaps through the journey of writing this thing up yes, is, good. is good. actually a good thing, you know? <laughs> like, um, you've made progress, you've learned something new. Um, and maybe it took writing the whole thing up and, and having to trash it, but, <laughs> you know, um, I don't know, like, I, maybe, maybe it's just like a, a, a lens, looking at it through a different lens and, and um, discovering the silver lining of that situation, you know? Um, this is good. I feel better. Thank you, Chad. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Simon? I've always had sort of... I've adopted a thing which is a kind of mantra. It's like, this is not the last thing. Oh, it doesn't that. have to be perfect. You can just carry it on to the next thing. Mm. But, I mean, I'm... I was describing it to my partner. The way I usually do projects is like I get all the way home from this long journey and then I just lie down in the nature strip <laughs> at the front of the house and stop. <laughs> and I was like, there's just, you just need to go just like two metres and you're in the house. I'm like, nah. Oh, I, love I don't want to do that. I like, love so I can cle see clearly that, you know, there's not that much more to be done, but it seems like an awful lot. Especially when you've already done so much. Oh. All right, this is good. This, this is now our second little 
thing to add to our list of commitments and notes for next year is this is not the last thing. I really, I really like that. And it's kind of, I mean, I guess it's the, the upside of um, my practice being predominantly writing is that in, even when the concrete has set, I can keep it and I can just you know, retitle the document and I can keep working on it. Um, whereas if I was, um, uh, you know, painting a work, um, there's only so many undo steps I can, you know, I really would have to start again. <laughs> um, but I really like that, that just knowing that, yeah, this is um, not just that this is not the last thing, but yet yeah, this, is, this is part of the practice. Yeah. There's a thing I was I was thinking about the the boredom. I I don't know if you have the same experience. I, I would imagine that so any kind of act of creation goes through some sort of say formal process where you go through different steps. But there's also some sort of emotional process that is always repeated yes. and that goes through a moment of doubt and yes. despair. <laughs> but having gone through the cycle a number of times, it's that moment when you realize shit, I'm in the moment of despair. <laughs> and you're lucid enough to say, oh, it's the moment of despair and I know that I get out of it. But you cannot not be in it at the same time. You're like, damn. <laughs> Why am I in it when I'm uh, like uh, conscious uh, that yes, yes. it's just a phase? I know this is bad and I'm here and I know that. <laughs> that that's where boredom comes. It's kind of, no, no, it's going to be like this for a while. <laughs> The sun has moved and we have moved and we've done our exercises, which is very important. As we were saying earlier, we've realigned our minds. This structure, this M Pavilion, why do you suppose it was designed like this? Um. In a way, it seems like a kind of very optimistic idea of shelter. <laughs> In that, like, it seems to have something covering each bit of space, but actually, like, it's a sort of set of perforations <laughs> that lets things in from every angle. It's true. If you, if you lay down, if we kind of, like, cock our heads back and look up. It looks like a puzzle that if we could slide across the various things, we could possibly make a complete shelter. Um, and I just, I love how it just draws your eye upwards th- anyway. What I liked about it was I thought it was yellow yeah. and blue from a distance. I think that's like quite designed, I think. Yeah. Um, I think they were very well aware that having yellow on the base will reflect up and maybe that's part of the appeal of it as well in that, you know, it's a bit of a spectacle and encourages people to look up. I was convinced when I saw the images that some of those panels were yellow and some of them were blue. Um, and, um, and then when I first walked in um, just after it opened um, and kind of, you know, looked up and across and saw you know, others' reflections, my reflection. Um, it got me to think about, you know, I, I, I titled this session Vertical Horizons Inspired by the Structure uh, before I'd seen it, before I'd experienced it. Um, 
And I guess because, um, you know, we've been in such a flat landscape, as we were saying earlier, we've been in such a flat kind of world, whether it's a flat screen or the, um, you know, the, 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 the flatness of our very short horizon in, in general. But also, I guess, um, you know, that question of why is this place here and goes back to what we we're saying earlier around public space and, you know, the five of us probably wouldn't have got together today to have this conversation if this structure wasn't here. Um, but what does it do, I guess, in terms of, you know, the way that people have been coming along while, while we've been here? I was hoping more people would be brave enough to come and join us. I think, you know, we're, we're forming a perimeter very much like the, the yeah, rope at the edge. So. That's true. Mm. Yeah, yeah, which is good for our conversation. <laughs> that's right. But not so open. Which makes you very lucky, dear listener, because it's, um, you can take your time. Uh, whereas, yeah, we've kind of, we sort of formed our, our, our little clique here. And, um, and yeah, we're a, a perimeter within a perimeter on this yellow creature, which is, which is kind of great. And at some point during the um, M Pavilion summer, it's likely that that, that perimeter will go. Um, it was explained to me a little while ago that, um, you know, it's there while... Uh, check-ins have to happen, but when more and more people are vaccinated, it won't be necessary and it'll be that completely open structure that it once was. Um, and um, again, this just, you know, that reflection on um, all of the, you know, very kind of um, labouring this metaphor now, but, the, the, you know, the boundaries that we've had to create for ourselves um, and um, the ways in which we, you know, encounter the world and, and interact with it. Um, we're going to let some of those go in, in different ways um, and that will hopefully be playful and confident and, and, you know, things that we can feel comfortable with. Um, how are we going to make 2022 better when it comes to, um, you know, our own our own practice? So we, you know, we've talked about um, um, our boredoms and frustrations. We've talked about the kinds of ways that we do things. Um, have there been, um, you know, going back to constructive disruption? Ha have there been moments this, you know, this year and last year where you have found yourself making a decision around something that you're no longer going to consider or tolerate in your practice? Or have you found yourself um, identifying things for the first time um, that are just incredibly important to you and have to change? Um, there's a movie I like very much called Desperate Remedies, which is a very high camp, 1991 New Zealand historical drama. And there's a line in it where the baddie says to the protagonist, um, Dorothea, you're no longer free to act. And she says, no, William, I'm free from always having to act. <laughs> and so, yeah, I just... Wow. I quite enjoyed not planning to do anything. So being free from the responsibility of feeling like I had to do things. Mm. Um, because I was like, well, nothing's happening. If I plan something, it's probably going to be cancelled. So I just won't. And... Um, <clears throat> Well, this seems like awfully lazy. It was also quite liberating. And I guess that's what I've been pursuing is a way of liberating my practices from all the internalized external critics 
or mm. obligations to just go, well, this is, I'm just going to find a way to think about what I do in a less encumbered way. And I guess that's what I'm looking at doing, mm. but actually planning some stuff. <laughs> oh, so yeah, absolutely planning some stuff, but then having that sense of, um, yeah, being freed from that sense of external expectations. I know that um, some of Julian's world has kind of recast itself as well in, in, in this sense and thinking about um, some future things. But how does that um, how does that resonate for you in terms of, um, yeah, rethinking the place of expectations in your world, in your practice? Yeah, for me, there's been, a, I don't know, a much greater assertiveness mm. and uh, liberation that has come. I think... So, one aspect of it is I've been working now for quite a while on very large global issues and for a period of time I had a, almost an, a form of apologetic approach to people who were working on the local and small kind of concrete things and say, I'm sorry, I'm doing something big and maybe, <laughs> maybe it's confronting or maybe it's odd. And now I'm just like why are you doing something so small? It is absolutely pointless. We know from the pandemic that we need to think global from the start. If what you're doing is too small, you might as well stop and go on the beach. Uh, and I'm much more forthright in, uh, and confrontational in, in, in doing that. Uh, and yeah, the pandemic has really cemented that. That's one, one aspect. A second but related aspect is... Um, Although I have intellectually kind of been always convinced that whatever we call it, the market financial rewards, etc., are entirely disconnected from social value or artistic value or environmental value, I had nonetheless still kind of to some extent tried to conciliate whoever comes from a social enterprise kind of discourse saying, oh, we need to somehow reconcile. And I was just like, complete bullshit. Uh, absolutely not. The only reason you, you consider money is for purely pragmatic reasons because might want for, depending on your situation, to have a certain amount, but it represents absolutely nothing. Mm. Um, and if therefore you are pursuing it as anything that has a value in itself as opposed to something that is exclusively pragmatic, you are deluded. Uh, and I'm just much, much more assertive in uh, that kind of position and I find it very liberating. So yeah, there's just kind of illusions that I've, or I don't know, I call them lies now, that I'm pushing aside. Um, so my inner bolshi has been uh, <laughs> unleashed, essentially. I, I don't know if Love it. you know, it's going to stay, but we'll see. Oh, I like that. So yeah, this um, a, a real clarity and forthrightness around um, what matters most, but also yeah, that kind of that preparedness to challenge others. Um, which I think is really interesting. Mm. Um, I find myself in a, in like almost the complete opposite space where um, <clears throat> there's almost no clarity as to what's coming next mm. for me. Um, I feel like I'm in a um, a major like milestone point in my career where I'm stepping down from from being um, artistic director of uh, of free play, um, and I don't know what's going to come next. And, you know, I've, I've been slowly getting back into my um, artistic practice with Helen. Um, but outside of that, yeah, I'm kind of open and um, wanting to see what will come next and where I need to be next. 
I think what guided me previously was um, um, actually frustration. I was, you know, when I first began, um, I was in my undergrad at RMIT doing game design degree. And um, during that degree, I had one particular class where uh, it exposed all the students to games beyond the screen. And that was a huge eye-opener for me. Uh, it was then that I realized, oh, actually, we can make games and experiences that, that step outside of the screen and, and take place in, in physical meat space. Um, and uh, that got me very curious and, and interested. And it was at that point in time where a lot of these types of experimental and alternative forms of uh, games and, and playful activities were um, really starting to boom. Uh, and I thought to myself, oh, I can be at the, the forefront of this movement and really contribute to it. Um, and I started looking internationally at was, at, at, as to what was happening in, in, this, in this scene, in this movement. Um, and there was some really great stuff happening overseas, but not so much happening in Melbourne. And I, I, looking back, it was maybe because we, we're just very geographically disconnected from the rest of the world. Things kind of reach our shores a little later. Um, that's kind of less and less the case now because of social media and, and things like that. Um, but at the time, yeah, I was looking overseas and all these amazing games and experiences and events and collectives were starting to emerge. And I was really frustrated at the time. And I shared my frustration with, with fellow colleagues here in Melbourne. And it wasn't until one of my friends from Copenhagen, um, who was part of these, these scenes and collectives that, that, that were emerging, and she just said, oh, Chad, why don't you just make something? Why don't you, do, <laughs> why don't you start something here and make that happen? And it wasn't until she pointed that out that it occurred to me that, oh, I can do stuff. Um, and so that was a big eye-opening moment for me. Um, and that frustration fueled me to make things happen. Um, and uh, since then, you know, directing free play, um, I've gotten into that like busy boredom kind of state where I actually don't think I had anything else left to contribute to the organization and my t I was like I could keep doing it you know I could keep churning out um, festival after festival um, but at some point one you know that's going to start becoming quite stagnant because my methods and, and ways of executing a, a festival um, uh, are not really going to change and like being in that moment of like when you're deep in in um, the phase of organizing and producing, um, you don't really have that moment, time to step back and reevaluate, and that's very valuable. Um, and so I'm hoping that this moment in time where I actually do have that opportunity to step back, I can reconfigure and, and maybe rediscover what frustrates me about the world um, and what we currently need. That's really big, Chad, because it's... Um yeah, I mean, as we were saying before about, you know, what the period of the pandemic has meant and, you know, different expectation, different time to ourselves, um, there's still this great um, reluctance that we tend to have about reflecting on our own practice and uh, our own sense of um, 
yeah, what are the values that inform it? Why do I do this? Um, am I a great big fraud? Um, uh, you know, what's the, um, if I'm talking about things being, um, you know, of a, of, of, of a bigger, broader scale, if I'm talking about, um, um, you know, how this connects globally, um, you know, needing global colleagues to sort of, yeah, point, point something out. Um, what is it about, um, you know, ourselves as practitioners and human beings that um, we just seem to um, be so reluctant to kind of um, reflect inwards about the things that really drive and constitute us the most? Why, you know, why do we set these things up against ourselves in that way? <laughs> what, are the, what are the blocks to just really taking that time? Does it, does it feel too indulgent? Does it feel just kind of, um, you know, uh, un, unjustifiable? Or do we lack that way of questioning ourselves the way we might question someone else? I'm just interested in hearing you speak because I... I think I do that all the time, reflect about what I do. Mm, and so mm. I've, I've kind of heard that people don't do it and I'm always perplexed because uh, I seem to be doing it quite a lot. So I'm wondering if it's the case that do you guys not do that, take time to reflect on practice and values and why you do what you do. And I also do it because otherwise I'm completely confused and I have no <laughs> idea what to do. So I just have to do it, otherwise I kind of stop functioning. It's like a cleaning of the machine almost. I wonder if we do it subconsciously as we work, but not as in like stopping and actively kind of going, okay, I'm going to reflect on my practice. I wonder if we just do it all the time, but very in a, in a very kind of subconscious way. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, it's a mixture of both that, like not being aware that we're reflecting, but also when we do become aware that we're reflecting on our practice and what we want to do next. Um, <clears throat> The, it's it's the next bar the the next step that that acts as the barrier, which is like to take action, you know, to action that, those thoughts. It's like we've identified what it is that's blocking us, but then um, the, often the next step doesn't come. It's like what um, meaningful actions can I take next to to make a change to the way we practice or the way we think? And I think that's a lot more difficult to do. I mean, I guess, like, being trained in a contemporary art practice, it is like a kind of intensely interrogatory mode of thought where you are constantly asked to ask yourself about what you're doing and why you're doing it and why everything is there. But in a lot of ways, that's not necessarily a very generative way of working. <laughs> because <clears throat> sometimes you just need time to leave things to be themselves or to just do things. Um, I think there's an artist, Elizabeth Newman, who I found quite helpful where she, on refusing the labor of making a didactic text for her work, she was saying, well, you know, I'm not necessarily the expert in my work and I don't, I'm not going to value my opinion of it over things. I'm just going to not know what it's about. And so I guess, you know, that's how to balance the reflection and a kind of intellectual rigor with also 
a kind of creative ignorance about what you're doing is the thing that I find hardest to balance. I think also just allocating time for reflection as well. I think as artists, we're always so busy <laughs> um, because we are working from project to project or multiple projects at the same time um, in order to meet deadlines that, you know, sometimes we just forget to stop and reflect. And it's important to, to be reflecting on your practice. Um, but we often don't allocate that time in into our schedules. Yeah. But I mean, doing this workshop is really great because we're doing it right now. <laughs> I find that um, artists I've worked with over the years, yeah, fall into either one of these two camps. Either it is something that is absolutely part of the ongoing practice and that, um, and that you know, opportunities, but also people are sought out, you know, to offer that critique. And certainly, you know, in, say, the School of Architecture at MIT that I've been involved with for a long time with, you know, it's very formal kind of twice a year and, and other schools, um, uh, very formal kind of, you know, let, let's present work in progress, let's have someone come and grill you. Um, um, it's, um, um, I find that um, Australia uh, more broadly in the arts has some of the least publicly critical culture uh, in that, you know, we can, we can go to a conference and it's often, you know, I really enjoyed your paper. Um, I'm working on this. How does what you're doing relate to what I'm doing as opposed to uh, let's really kind of get into what, what those issues were and risk, as Julian was saying, risk being confrontational to really draw out something that, that could be distinct, that, that could be quite um, unexpected. Um, and so there's yeah, that, yeah, the one kind of group of artists who are yeah, always looking for that, but then others who, um, yeah, there's, um, it's just really difficult to find that time, it's not valued, or um, when artists get together, especially in a context that might be facilitated by an organisation, then it tends to be about things like, let's talk about funding and the impossibility of getting it and the, you know, difficulties of the broader uh, production environment and... Um, um, now I'm just distracted by those three people who look like they're about to, you know, launch into either either some mystery is about to happen, um, or they are um, uh, circus performers, and we're about to see some kind of human pyramid. Oh, it looks like the latter. Excellent. So there is climbing. This is brilliant. So they are standing in front of that extraordinary sculpture of the person. Um, throwing the, um, the cannonball and um, I reckon they need someone to help to take the photos that all three of them can be involved in whatever form is being created there but um, how fantastic. Now behind them walking along we see some other people who are carrying other objects which are to be of uh, to, to, to be concerned about. Uh, so it looks like the tantrum as we call it which is happening in the city earlier might be um, might be coming to a close um, and um, can't quite see what the what the flags are from here but that's um, yeah often often to be to be concerned about which is ashamed you know to be in our environment where we look around at others and the markers that they're carrying and think are we safe or are we not but for now we are in our yellow space here um, and in that space of um, reflecting and planning and, and so on. Um, if, um, if our practice is something that we're kind of, you know, in general, happy with, because the ways that you've described what you do um, in each way has like 
filled me with a kind of energy. You, you, you all clearly um, enjoy what you do. There's a sense of um, the you that you want to develop is being realised and developed by what you're doing. But is that right? Um, when we had that conversation earlier and, and you described what you did, um, there's a way in which, you know, we use a certain language because we're used to speaking about our practice. Um, but do you in fact like and enjoy what you do? Or has this conversation now brought out a sense of a disjunction? Is, that, is, is the alignment still there? How do, you, how do you feel about liking what you do and being comfortable with it? I think for me, I'm still figuring out my identity and my practice. And in some ways, I'm actually enjoying that process. Yeah, good. Um, and in some ways, I find that I'm a lot happier having um, started working as an independent artist versus my previous career back in Perth as a digital designer. Um, working on my own projects has... I feel very satisfied and a lot, the projects are much more meaningful to me. Um, and yeah, I'm actually very, very excited and curious as to what 2022 will bring. This um, is good. Yeah, like I think previously when I worked in a government job as a designer, it was very stable. It was permanent job, stable income. And one of the things that I've had to kind of learn to adjust being an independent artist is that there is no stability <laughs> and being flexible. And um, in some ways, I'm still learning how to adapt to that. But I think I'm a bit more comfortable than before um, and actually surprised at all the opportunities that we've um, been able to get um, this year and surprised that opportunities are still coming our way. So Great. I'm very excited. Yeah. Well, that is a good feeling, but also the feeling of, um, yeah, knowing that that sense of identity is something that is continually, you know, at issue in our work um, and that, and absolutely that that's something to be enjoyed in the, in the curiosity and exploration of it. How about you, Simon? Um, well, you know, my partner, would, when I was working at home, was like, why, why do you do this if you hate it? <laughs> <laughs> like it's, it's not that I necessarily hate it, but I I don't think that it needs to be enjoyed. But also, it's just kind of difficult. Like I I do it because it's difficult. But then I also have had a kind of powerful sense of shame about the things that I do to like somehow the exposure of yourself by doing doing them and putting them out in the world, which I have been trying to get rid of. So I think that's unproductive. I think difficulty, difficulty is great. Sort of weird internalized shame, not so good. So I guess that's my, my future trajectory is the continuing working away from that. And I guess that's also what I was talking about with a kind of liberation of the practice from the the unhelpful feelings. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you some more about that feeling? Because it's something that um, I have heard a lot of artists describe in a range of different ways. And, um, and it sounds kind of like, you know, when we create something um, and maybe there's an aspect of the quite personal in it, um, is it about 
creating or showing something that um, you feel you have exposed too much of yourself? I mean, I think, yeah, the way in which you see yourself as being contiguous with your work then makes you extremely vulnerable when that work goes out into the world as a part of you. And it's, you know, it doesn't have to be such a kind of intense emotional relation. You can have, have that relationship with yourself while you're making the work and the work goes out and you're like, well, it's the work, it's, it's off doing stuff. It's not me anymore. But yeah, so I think, you know, there is... I can't decide... There's, there's such a strong social construction of creative workers as being identified with their work. Yeah. That, you know, I can't tell how much of it is just actually, like, that is the experience of doing it and that is the experience yeah, of the social construction of doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it a feeling that you want to do something with? Um, like, do you, do you want to feel less of it? Or do you sometimes find it useful? Like, does, does it trigger something in your practice that, that is focusing in, in any helpful way? I think along with the kind of last-minute desperate <laughs> run to the finish line, uh, I think it's a kind of maladaptive way of working. Like, it's productive, but it's also, in the long run, not very great for yourself as a human being. I think um, one of the biggest challenges that, I, that I've had in my practice, uh, I mean, I, I really enjoy doing what I do, you know, um, um, creating, curating, producing these festivals and these exhibitions and these events, um, create a lot of opportunities and, and connections and networks and conversations within our community. Um, and, and, and ultimately what I, what I do is, is I care for the, for the community, going to, you know, the, the, the meaning of the word to curate um, is to care. Um, and what I've found that uh, is really challenging is that um, during this time of caring for others, I've actually neglected caring for myself um, and I feel quite burnt out. Um, and yeah, yeah. And so now I need to, um, I think, step back from that and and recalibrate, re reconfigure, and, and rediscover um, a way, a process of of doing my practice that um, that doesn't exclude uh, myself from from the picture. Right, let's talk some more about that, especially as we go into next year. And today, um, Saturday the 18th of December 2021, is uh, for a, a lot of people in kind of, you know, uh, nine to five worky kinds of jobs, it's, it, it, for many people it's the first day of like the summer holidays. Uh, so it's very timely that, that our conversation is t- today because it's sort of like whether you're still working next week or not, everyone's on a bit of a ghost low, everyone's on a bit of a, you know, so we all now have the license to think, um, you know, uh, a bit more carefully and self-caringly. We're going to be in these conversations with friends and family about what did this year mean? And then it'll be New Year's Eve and New Year's Day and we'll begin talking about all those constructive things for next year. So this is a sort of heralding of that time now for the next few weeks for us. Um, 
I want to ask about the commitments that we're going to make to our own practice, but I find that that question can be quite intimidating. So I'm going to reframe it as um, what is the advice that we want to give to the people who are listening to this recording over this little while um, and then into 2022? Because, you know, for all of the reasons, we want to make 2022 better. Um, you know, we, we, we really wanted to make this year better. And, um, you know, we've, we've been exhausted because last year there was a real sense that we were in this together, that um, there was a, you know, a, a, a plan, there was a, maybe a little bit more of a, a public alignment of the, the politics and what was being expressed by political leaders. And then this year we've seen a lot of that just bifurcation and splintering and the very deliberate um, divisions between people. And so we've sort of come to realise that maybe people are not in this together and um, especially anyone involved in something that's creative or cultural. Um, we've been even more drained um, and, um, you know, we. I, I think the consistent conversation I'm having, um, I don't know about you guys, but it's just that yeah, how tired we are, which Simon is beautifully demonstrating with a very elegant yawn just now. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, we are really tired and we want to feel stronger and more invigorated about next year. We've just talked a lot about um, making leaps to different scales, about working in the, in the small scale or the very big scale and the global scale. We've talked about um, that busy but bored feeling um, and, and, you know, sort of identifying that in ourselves. We've talked about, you know, that viscous lot of concrete that's about to set and <laughs> it kind of breaks towards the end um, as opposed to the, the feeling of, um, you know, like that's okay, this is not the last thing, this thing. Um, there is a next step. Um, we've talked about, you know, ways of reflecting um, that could be cognitive, could be subconscious, could be, you know, um, intellectually an ongoing part of the practice, could be, you know, about our senses of values. Um, and now we've touched on that big one around self-care and what does that even mean to just be careful and responsible about our bodies and our hearts, our relationships with each other. Um, and at the very beginning, we spoke briefly about the really irreplaceable place of accidental encounter in our lives, that when, you know, we are strengthened by uh, the things that happen that we don't expect, you know, the game we didn't expect to see outside of the, the state library, um, the artwork that, you know, we didn't expect to be completely arrested by. Um, so we kind of, you know, we need to have a world that is composed by things that we create and by, you know, engagement with work that other people create. Um, we need to have a world where, you know, I guess that the ethics of the decision-making give us some kind of confidence. And we also need to be healthy and, and, and well-connected to each other so that our practice has meaning and it enriches us and, and, and it develops. So... What is the advice that we're going to give to people who are listening now and also wanting those things uh, to yeah, expand our horizons in different ways next year and beyond? Remember to rest. <laughs> 
or try, try at least try and schedule in some rest periods. Um, yeah, I, I do feel I really resonate with the point about self-care. I think that's something that I would like to work on more next year. Um, but yeah, resting also um, allows time for reflection. Um, I think that's also very important. Um, and like this structure here, I was those um, reflective surfaces actually kind of makes me think of rear view mirrors, kind of like looking oh, back, but yes. you're still able to see through, look up the horizon, so look into the future. So, you know, plan for the future, but also have time to look back as well. Oh, thank you, Helen. That is full of wisdoms. <laughs> um, I guess, like, as much as art and culture feels very individual in that we process it through ourselves. Um, it's a collective endeavour and it's not a yes. competition. Yes. So I guess, you know, be attentive to your relationships with your peers and be supportive mm. and kind of try and be joyful for other people yes. and excited by what they do. Ah, let's talk about that for a little bit more because the last couple of years, and I said earlier, you know, we weren't necessarily going to talk about, you know, the, the politics of, of, of the arts in terms of, you know, funding and competition and so on, but the last couple of years have made peer artists and peer organisations in many ways even more competitive with each other than before we've, so we're seeing, you know, last year had some real unity in the industry, um, um, and this year, um, you know, the, the politicisation of arts funding has made it completely disunified. Um, but just being, being kind of, oh, what's the word? Being more than mindful, like it being just part of your ethos that this is a world of generosity, you know, a, a, a space of relationships that we constantly create and recreate. Um, yeah, I think that's incredibly important, Simon. So, yeah, what Helen was saying about self-care, but uh, Simon was saying the care for one another is what, what kind of makes this ecology an ecology. Mm. The thing that I've been toying with, the, like the shape it's taken in my head is that anything worth doing today is more likely to fail than succeed. And I think there's a, like, there's a hard knowledge, truth, acknowledgement of that mm. that I think is important to embrace individually and collectively that we're in a civilization that is on the brink of collapse. Yeah. There is no way that we can survive without like massive worldwide billion peoples of extreme suffering unless we reorganize our entire structures at a very deep level. And that's outrageously difficult and we have no idea how to do it. And so what, one of the things that we can do as, as artists, as creators is kind of invent those new forms and most likely it's not going to succeed, especially each individual uh, attempt. But if there are enough of them, it's more likely that one of those will succeed. And I see so many people who are, including myself at times, like I'm, I'm, I'm no better than anyone on that, who are uh, afraid of failure, but also in a culture where we want to do something that succeeds. Yeah. And so instead of actually tackling the, the, the real problem, we'll do, we do something smaller that will work and that's pointless mm. Uh, mm. and so I think that there is a uh, an important commitment to encourage things that fail but that kind of failed very boldly and also to reassure ourselves that failure is actually going to be the norm we're not going to succeed uh, and, 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 and whatever that means uh, let's not expect it 
Uh, it's a, it's a, I, I would call that a kind of enlightened pessimism. Maybe I'm too continental, but uh, there's something there that I think like letting go of that optimism that then turns into a lie and a self-restriction is, is critical. This is um, this is very important, um, and as you say, that 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 kind of um, I mean, what you're describing is the entire capitalist project that it is based on. When we think about any element of it, just you know simple marketing to the, the broader system, it's based on the fabrication of um, you know this shiny thing which is going to be wildly commercially successful uh, to be replaced by that shiny thing which is going to be wildly etc uh, etc et with with no regard to the environment to what's needed to you know etc etc um you've also just made me think of um you know so success and failure um as kind of not the only two elements in that continuum that it's not just a continuum uh, it's not sorry it's not it, it's not a linear kind of it's not you know successful or fail or somewhere along the line but there's this yeah complex bifurcation of of um possibilities that are set in motion um and that we need to be setting those things in motion um and lots of them or we're fucked yeah mm. Chad, what's your advice? Um, I think I'm going to echo Helen's notions of, of rest, um, but also um, being thoughtful and critical of what form that rest takes um, and, and, and the fact that rest may not necessarily be doing nothing. Um, you know, you could not do nothing for a year and still feel very exhausted or tired or, or burnt out. Um, and, yeah, yeah, just trying to rediscover or realign yourself and, 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 and figure out what your what brings you joy. Um, and, and, and those things might not be the things that brought you joy um, pre-pandemic, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and maybe just to be okay with that as well. Yeah, I mean, of course, because everything's changed and so we've changed and maybe we've changed in ways that we're thinking about a bit or, or, or that we're not. Um, and that, you know, as Julian just put it in a big stark way, um, you know, the, there is a hell of a lot at stake for the world and for the ways that, that we go about, you know, that, that thinking and that working. Um, I've been trying to... Um, just why you've all been speaking, I'm trying my mind to articulate the advice that I would want to give and, and it's been inspired by just looking around us while we've been speaking um, and I've sort of kept my eye out for uh, would somebody else like to join us and I've also kept my eye out of, you know, are those people, um, you know, friendly or hostile um, and thankfully there have been very few hostile people so far, um, though... Um, I can still hear a helicopter, which is not a good sign. Um, and when I think about the conversations that we have with each other, so here today, there are a group of us, um, but then through the pandemic, we have... Um, I'm just going to let that helicopter pass. And away it goes. Um, through the pandemic, in different ways, um, we have... Um, you know, in a programmed way, connected up with people and had some conversations about being 
happy or frustrated or um, um, busy but bored. Um, but I think in, in lacking some of those accidental encounters, um, we've probably tended to have um, conversations with, you know, our kinds of people uh, being, you know, remotely kind of arty, culturally something designy sorts of people. And so I think the advice that I want to give, but I'm not really sure how to do it, um, is how can we be having, you know, these kinds of meaningful political, you know, small p, little p conversations with the kinds of people that we wouldn't ordinarily be having a conversation with. And then um, particularly as artists and and talking about what an artistic practice might mean um, or how it might connect you to the world in different ways. But then there's that whole threshold question about, you know, what, what does that mean to be having a conversation with someone who you wouldn't normally be having a conversation with about the arts um, or about your practice? Um, and, you know, is it about family conversations at, at, at um, uh, you know, summer break, Christmas, New Year? Like how, do we, how do we bridge those gulfs? Because um, I feel like that's been, um, yeah, one of my big experiences of the pandemic is just, like, seeing those fissures, those fault lines. Um, you know, who are we creating work for and why? And who is seeing it and who is responding to it? You know, who is playing with it? Um, how did we reach them? And, um, um, you know what's the second moment and not just the first moment of, of that encounter? Um, and I don't know that one yet. Um, and I think it's um, for all the optimistic, pessimistic, optimistic reasons that Julien was just mentioning, I think it's only going to get more difficult, that question, you know, before it gets better. You know, how, how do we go to that, that second moment? Um, but I guess, you know, in knowing that it's important to a lot of us, uh, we can ask each other for help um, and think about, yeah, ways to um, uh, build, create, design the kind of world that, you know, is just um, most generative and most, most inspiring. <laughs> we're, all, we're all nodding in tired agreement. <laughs> I think it could be time to say thank you, Chad. Thank you, Helen. Uh, merci, Julien. Thank you, Simon. Um, this was a day that was going to be about, you know, kind of groups of people in different ways on the chairs, on the curious mound over there, on the grass, looking up, looking across, thinking about what creative practice means to us and, um, and you know, how we talk about our practice, what's been disrupted the last couple of years and, you know, into the, into the immediate future and, and, and what comes next. Um, and um, instead we have had a really kind of beautifully, intensely personal conversation, which we've recorded. Um, and so just enormous thanks to you all. I just, yeah, I feel like I need like quiet writing or napping time now so I can just think about all this. So thank you all so, so much. Thank you so much for, for running this session. Thank you. Oh, thank you.
Thank you. Um, to wrap up, a big thanks to um, Sam and the team, to Ollie, uh, to everyone at M Pavilion, to the Naomi Milgram Foundation for each year offering this gift to Melbourne. Thank you to the City of Melbourne and the Victorian State Government. Um, and big thank you to Clarence, who earlier helped get all of the um, seeds out of my hair because uh, it's very windy here today. So thank you very much. Um, see you at the next M Pavilion event. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. <laughs>